Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. And we thank you that we, your people, can gather together to worship you, exalting your name, and also testifying to the fact that our rest is in you, our resurrected Lord. We thank you for this brief time that we can gather together and look at the doctrines of your church. And we pray that you would guide us and direct us by your Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, in beginning this service, there are two places within our doctrine, that is the Westminster Standards, the Confession and the Catechisms, that address the outward and ordinary means of grace. And you may recall when we started this series that that's how I introduced it. It's found in our shorter catechism as well as the larger catechism. And in the shorter and the larger catechisms, the language is fairly similar, although, as you would expect, the larger catechism does, in fact, expand in its definition. But the question is asked, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? And that's a little different than the way in which the shorter catechism asks the question. But I'm drawing from the larger catechism today, and it should be printed on your handout. Look at this with me. Here's what we believe. In other words, the question is, is how does God use the Word of God effectually, that is, by the Holy Spirit, how does God use the Word of God for our salvation? And we understand that that salvation is the gamut. That is, how does God use the, the uh, Word of God in our regeneration, in our justification, in our uh, adoption, in our sanctification, in our glorification. How does God use the Word of God? And they, it answers this way. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving out or rather of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Now, Hopefully, in reading that definition, you can now understand why I put such an emphasis on learning to read the Word of God rightly. Uh, as one of the, the prayers that uh, Johnny Gibson includes in his uh, devotional book, Be Thou My Vision, uh, one of them is, is that it is so important that we know how to read the Word of God because it's a matter of salvation. We need to know how to read the Word of God. So that's what we've studied uh, uh, previous to today. But there is a phrase there that I think surprises many who are new to the Reformed faith or to Presbyterianism specifically, and it is this phrase right here. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of Etc., etc., etc. And I remember when we planted this church, and I can remember one of the early uh, 
attenders and eventual members of this church uh, who said, you know, you need to be careful emphasizing the preaching of the Word because we are in an age when it will eventually go out of vogue. There are so many preaching resources out there. And I think to a certain extent what he was trying to say is, you know, on my devices, I can listen to far better preaching than you. Which is true. That is true, whether he meant that or not. Undoubtedly, you can find better preachers out there than the local preacher at the local church. But remember that when this was drafted by the Westminster Divines, there were no recording devices. Uh, I say that. There were recording devices by hand. Uh, some of, of the, the members of Calvin's church, uh, St. Pierre in Geneva, would quickly shorthand down some of his prayers because they were so majestic. But nevertheless, there were no recording devices. To hear the preaching of God's Word, you had to be present, physically present in hearing the preaching of God's Word. And so I start with this question. And it's the question that I want to develop uh, over today and next Sunday. And that is, why quote, especially the preaching of the Word? Why? Why especially? Because in, in my mind, I would think, well, it should be preaching, but especially the study of God's Word. Preaching, but especially the reading of God's Word etc., etc. But that's not how they drafted the language, and they include this identical language in both the shorter and the larger catechism. At one time, the the English-speaking Reformed Church was unanimous in this understanding. Our forefathers were unanimous in this understanding. It has been passed down to us over hundreds of years, a unanimity of this understanding of especially the preaching of God's Word. Why? Yes? That's right. But why not, why, why can't Paul be interpreted there as, and I'm playing the devil's advocate here, I understand. Uh, why can't Paul's... Uh, Uh, proclamation there or his writing there, why can't that be interpreted as just evangelism? Because surely someone comes to faith through uh, evangelistic discourse, for example. Julie? Okay, if you couldn't hear Julie, what she said was, is, is God is the one who established the church and it is within the church that preaching is, is done. And, and, so, so, and, I, and I think that's right. And, and, and if you know your history, uh, and you probably do, if you know your history of the Westminster Assembly, certainly the integrity of the church, that is both universal as well as local, was at the forefront of, of their mind. So certainly that's included here. 
But, but why else? I mean, J.D. is, is rightly said, and incidentally, that's one of the proof texts uh, in the, the, the shorter and larger catechism, if I remember correctly. So undoubtedly, there is a necessity of a proclamation, but why specifically would the divines include the preaching here? Yeah, Jerry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. If you couldn't hear Jerry, he's, he's drawing from both the creation account of we are made in the image of God and God spoke forth creation. So also John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word also uh, carried forward as we are made in His image. So we are speakers and so there is a speaking forth uh, pronouncement of the Word. Why else? Don, you were going to say something? Or... Uh, then JJ, Don. That's good. That's good. JJ, were you going to say that? You just want to. You just want to say ditto, right? Ditto. Okay. All right. So, so what, if, if you couldn't hear Don, what he said was, and so he's he, he's drawing from, I believe, uh, Paul's counsel to Timothy and instruction to the church that God does, in fact, uniquely gift certain men to, in fact, exposit the Scriptures. And therefore, by virtue of their gifting, and we would also add to that gifting education, that they are able to to dive into the Scripture and pull out, exegete and exposit from the Word of God uh, and to the church that is unique to their gifting. And then Don also said that uh, as the preacher preaches, so also there is a connection between what he is preaching and his life. And, 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 so, and I'm not touching on that today, but I think that's a really important part is that the, the integrity of the preacher also brings validity to the message in which he preaches. Yes. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. So the necessity of being able to hear uh, is involved. Now, again, so again, play devil's advocate. So we have heard of people pulling out the Gideon's Bible in the hotel room and coming to faith in Christ. We know that we're all called to share the gospel, uh, and there are some that are specifically gifted. We call them evangelists who are are specifically gifted to share the gospel, which is a differential, a different gift than uh, the one who's called to preach and teach the Word, but nevertheless, there is the necessity of that proclamation. J.D.? Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. That's why I said in my introduction, when they say salvation, they mean our regeneration, our adoption, our sanctification, our, our uh, glorification. So be, be careful in, in that, because that's undoubtedly what they're unpacking here. That's right. Anything else? Any other pers- uh, comments on why they would choose the word preaching? And I think these are, these are all excellent comments um, all of which uh, you're going to find when you look at, at this in the larger and shorter catechism in, in the proof text. What I want to do today is I want to at least start with unpacking the question of what is preaching? Because if, if we say, and if they say, and we agree with them, if we say that especially the preaching, it's that important, especially the preaching, then we kind of need to know what it is, don't we? Or not kind of. We definitely need to know what it is. And what I want to do is I want to just start, and there are a number of places that I could go to to draw from, but I think this is the simplest. And that is, I want to draw from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. You should have that on your handout. Here's what the verse says. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's a pretty good definition. We could could add to that, but I think for just the, the sake of our discussion today, that's a really good place for us to start. Because one of the things that a a preacher will oftentimes encounter is someone will say, well, preaching is just saying what the passage means. And, and, and if I've heard that once, I've, I've heard it 10, 20 times. You know, well, preach, just, just get up there and say what the passage says. And if I have enough time or if I'm feeling a bit snarky, I will typically say, that, that's Bible study. Bible study is really important, and we should have Bible studies within the church, and they are uh, integral to our understanding and unpacking the Scriptures. But that's not what preaching is, and that's not what Paul says here at all. So preaching is not a Bible study, nor is it just simply saying what the passage says, although the preacher needs to say what the passage says and not use the passage as simply a, a, uh, a diving board to sort of lunge into the deep end of something else, so to speak. So what I want to do is I want to show you seven things that this verse, that as I understand it, is teaching us about preaching. So first of all, Preaching requires preparation. Preaching 
requires preparation. Some of you may come from uh, a, a background where the, the preacher pulled the sermon together on Saturday nights. Uh, my daughter has a friend uh, that uh, had, had m- mentioned to her, who's also a, a, a pastor's daughter, and, and said, you know, oh, my dad was always so busy on Saturday nights pulling his, his sermon together. And, I, and, and again, part of this is personality, but I thought you would have to send me off to like a, some sort of clinic, you know, rehab clinic or something. That, that if, if I was doing my sermons on Saturday night, I wouldn't sleep all night. Um, it would be that disconcerting. Uh, but, but one of the things that, that I love about most of the pastors in our denomination, and I think many in the Reformed tradition, and certainly, let me be clear, in history, the great preachers of our tradition is... They prepared. They prepared. And one of the things that I'm thankful for as a pastor here is you as a church and the session as the leaders of this church give me adequate time to prepare a sermon. And I dedicate all day Thursday, but as of late, especially working through Ecclesiastes, I now have started on, uh, on Wednesday afternoon, and on the sermon I'm preaching today, I started on Wednesday afternoon, I worked all day Thursday, and I finished it mid to late morning on Friday. So I don't know what that is, but I, p- people say, how long does it take to prepare for a sermon? And my go-to is typically, best case scenario, six to eight hours, typically eight to twelve hours. So just for one sermon. So, but that's important, because we believe that it is especially the preaching of God's Word that God uses. And so I'm thankful for that. And I don't think that I'm, I'm out of the ordinary within our denomination. Secondly, Paul says that preaching is consistent. Preaching is consistent no matter the culture. No matter the culture. So my friend who said, well, you know, preaching's going to be out of vogue within uh, 10 years. Well, we've been here 11. I'm still preaching. Uh, and uh, it doesn't go out of ver- vogue. In fact, it is consistent. And one of the things that we find is that true preaching of the Word, no matter what culture that you are in, has a certain integrity to it. That is, because it is Word-derived and it is Word-driven, then it will always be consistent because it's tied back to the Word of God. And so it is consistent. Thirdly, preaching reproves. Preaching reproves. What do we mean by that? Well, it is, uh, it is a reprimand. It is a correction. Uh, one of the benefits that we have in the age in which we live is we have an incredible wealth of resources. We have sermon podcasts. We have sermon videos. We have sermon audios. We have sermon books of sermons. Um, we live really in a remarkable age. But a preacher preaching from Philadelphia is not going to know what's going on in Fort Smith, Arkansas at 120 North 9th Street. One of the things that that is emphasized is a local preacher knows his congregation. And so 
the way that I communicate to you may not be a carryover to another pre, another listener. Now, I hope it is, and we provide you know, all the stuff out there. You, you can hear sermons from this church on YouTube and, and other places, iTunes and things like that. But, but the point is, is that a pastor will oftentimes introduce correction into his preaching specific to his congregation. In other words, is I'm not preaching to people in Indiana who may listen to one of my sermons. Don't really care, quite candidly. But I do preach to this congregation. So it's going to be specific to that. And in that includes reprimanding and correcting. It also includes, and this is a, a word that's oftentimes under, misunderstood, it also includes rebuking. It includes rebuking, which is a sharp disapproval. There is a, a, a sharpness at times to a sermon, according to Paul, teaching Timothy. When there is something going on, it is a sharp, uh, that, that is wrong, a sharp disapproval may be necessi- uh, necessary. Now, to be clear, not every sermon includes all of these attributes. Uh, but what, they, what it, the point is, is that oftentimes preaching is the vehicle through which these are dealt with. Number five, preaching exhorts. Preaching exhorts. It is an exhortation. It is in that sense, we'd consider that in the positive sense. That this is what you are to believe. This is how you are to live, so forth and so on. And there are different positions on this in in terms of preaching. For example, one of my professors of of preaching um, did not like uh, my style of we, us, our... He, He said, you're the preacher... They're the congregation. It should be you. And, and, and he said, you, you need to have more of a, a, a commanding style. of you. You're the prophet directing the direction from God. Well, I can't do it. And I'm not sure that... I, it, it, it may have been good advice. I, I don't want to disrespect him. He's a brilliant man uh, and a, a fabulous preacher, but, uh, but I couldn't do it. I'm like, well, you know, I'm... I, I, I am a man with feet of clay, just like you. Um, And you've afforded me the opportunity to dive and delve into this passage and to use the gifts that God has given me, though humble they may be, but we're in this together. And so most of the time, I'll preach with with an us, uh, uh, or y'all, we, whatever the the word may be. But part of that is, is that we need to be exhorted that we're in this together. We're, we're fallen human beings in need of God's grace, in need of a Savior. We who are in Christ, we need exhortation to live this thing called the Christian life. And so it's important. Number six, preaching requires patience. Preaching requires patience. And now, it requires patience, and I, I know that now jokes will abound. Where's, where's Phil, right? Now, I know you're back there, yeah. Um, 
patience, uh, preaching requires patience on your part, uh, right? Uh, because uh, s- sometimes the, 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 the sermon may, may meander and there may be certain things where, where you may think, well, that, you've lost me, John, and I'm, I'm not following along. But it also requires patience on the preacher's part. Uh, because there are times, and I am guilty of this as every preacher is, where you're on a bullet train to the point and you can miss key things that uh, need to be drawn out. Now, that happened to me on, on this sermon this, this weekend. Um, I made edits to this sermon on Saturday morning. I made edits at 5.20 this morning as well. And so there are things that jump out, and I'm like, okay, patience, John. Patience. Slow, slow down. There are other areas where you might cut, but you need to have patience. But also, and this was the point that my friend was making, is, is his argument was our culture does not have the attention span to be able to listen to a 30-minute sermon. So cert preaching is going to die. And then his second advice was, is you need to consolidate your preaching to about 10 minutes. What? I can't do anything in 10 minutes. I can't fix my lunch in 10 minutes, let alone preach in 10 minutes. But my argument back to to this guy was, is A, I don't think you know what preaching is. And then secondly, my argument was, is that that is actually an offense to the Word of God. Because if you're going to delve into the Word of God and unpack it, it's going to take a lot longer than 10 minutes. So I don't know what that requires. Maybe I should have said, you know, go to a class on increasing your attention span or something. I don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, put, put the device down, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it does require patience. And then finally, number seven, preaching includes teaching. And you might say, well, is it one the same? But, but they're not. And they're distinguished in Scripture. Specifically, in the New Testament, two different words are used, and they are oftentimes used side by side, not as coupling, but as differentiation. And so, teaching is, in fact, distinct, but preaching does include teaching. And so, if the preacher stands up and and all he does is a a proclamation, as we would say, above heads of the congregation, um, and does not take the congregation with him and be able to draw out uh, the Scriptures and teach through that, well, then that's an inadequate sermon. Part of preaching is teaching and combining these two. I want to give you two examples. I want to give you one example from the Old Testament and give you one example of, from the New Testament of preaching. And the first one is in Ezra chapter 8, verses 4 through 12. And for sake of time, I'm not going to go there, uh, but I think it's, it is on your handout, isn't it, that Scripture reference? So you can go and, and read this later, but let me give you a summary of the sermon. So Nehemiah is recording it, supposedly. Ezra is the preacher. Now Ezra gets up, and it is a really fascinating time within Israel's history as they have, they have come back and sort of they're, they're, a, they're a ragtag assembly of misfits, so to speak, trying to figure out uh, how, how do we 
fit all this back together, literally in the case of a wall, but also uh, metaphorically in terms of a country. How does this all fit back together? And Ezra gets up and he preaches. It even says that he, he stands, we might translate the Hebrew, he stands on a plank, uh, as if he's, he's sort of a pulpit uh, preaching out to the people. And Ezra reads the Word of God publicly. He opens up the Word of God, just as we do on Sunday mornings, and, and, and we read the Word of God. This is setting the stage. That means that the sermon is based on the Word, not vice versa, right? And Ezra reads from the Word of God, and then he leads the congregation in blessing the Lord. He leads the congregation, he reads the Word, and then he says, and this is, these are my words, not Ezra's, but he reads the Word of God, he says, is this not extraordinary? Is this not incredible? Oh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God who has given us His Word. Praise God who is not silent but has revealed Himself in His Word. My expanded translation on what Ezra preaches there. But he leads the congregation in blessing the Lord and then he incorporates others. And this is really fascinating. It is as if he says, now this is the corporate church from a national perspective, and now it's important that there be local preachers. And so then he assigns local preachers to go out and to teach the people the Word of God. And so throughout the camp, there are different preacher teachers teaching the people, helping them to understand and What are they teaching the the people? Just one second. What are they teaching the people? First of all, they're teaching the people that you are to read the Word of God clearly. Isn't that interesting? Preaching and teaching the Word, saying, go to the Word, know how to read it clearly. And they, quote, gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, the Hebrew translation there of gave the sense means that they exposited what the Word means. They gave the the sense of it. They gave the meaning of it. They gave the right way to understand it, to interpret the Word of God. In other words, they preached the Word of God, delivered to the people. The second example that I want to give you is from the New Testament. And it is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And I'm going to break this down perhaps in too much detail, but I find this very interesting. In, in Acts chapter 2, in verses 14 through 41, is the, the, the total sermon. And you, you can go back, it's a, it's a rather lengthy sermon, and there's some engagement and, and perhaps some interruptions there. But, but nevertheless, Peter is preaching, and you may recall that he's preaching on the day of, of Pentecost, and he begins with... Well, he begins, fascinatingly enough, like Ezra does. He begins quoting Scripture. He starts with Joel. And he quotes from the book of Joel, and then he immediately (laughs) reproves the people. He reads the Word of God, and then he says, Now, I'm taking you to the woodshed. I'm taking you, and I'm going to teach you through Joel. Then he uses the passage, after he has reproved the people, to explain to them that they have failed, that they have broken God's law, that they have sinned egregiously. He then uses the passage to 
point to life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. In other words, by taking them and showing them where they have sinned, He doesn't leave them there to wallow in their sin. He then takes them to Christ. Now, He takes them to Christ by way of Joel, and then He's going to come along, and one of the beautiful things that we've gained from the Reformation is actually not new by way of the Reformation. And that is, is that we've gained from the Reformation is that Scripture interprets Scripture. That when we're working our way through the Bible, we go first and see where Scripture points to, answers, correlates to the passage that we're in. Now, that, that is one of the things that, that for, for example... I had one man uh, say to me, he says, I just don't understand why you quote so much Scripture in your sermons. He said, why don't you just spend more time in the argument of it? And I'm like, I mean, you got enough time, man? I mean, like there's a whole, we just go through Reformation history and show you how did that work out for the Roman Catholic Church? Not so well, yeah. So the Reformers would interpret Scripture with Scripture, but it wasn't new to them. Peter does it right here in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. He goes from Joel, he confronts the sin of the people, he tells them that Christ is their only hope, and then he quotes David. And he quotes David from the Psalms to support what he has just exposited. And then... He exhorts the people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He teaches them that God's promise was fulfilled in Christ. And he then quotes from another psalm, once again supporting his argument. But in that psalm, what he does, and it's so to speak that he started with the gospel, then he goes through his sermon and then he returns to Christ and he quotes from the psalm to essentially say, now I'm going to explain to you this, Christ is preeminent. He holds up Christ to them and says, this is who you are to see in my preaching from Joel and this psalm and this psalm. And then, believe it or not, he rebukes them again as if he can't get through this sermon without rebuking the people more than once. But this time, he gets quite graphic and he says, and you're murderers because you crucified him. You put him to death and you're all guilty. Mic drop, we would say, right? At that point, he has pointed them to Christ and then he comes again and he rebukes them and he doesn't leave them there. Then he says, repent. Repent of your sin, sins and be baptized. And he doesn't stop there. Then, you're really wanting to go back and read this sermon now, aren't you? Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. After he has then rebuked them, then led them to, to repent of their sin and to be faithful in receiving the sign and seal of the new covenant, then he says, now I'm going to explain the theology to you. Let me, let me lay this out for you. It's not going to be too deep for you. Here it is. He teaches them about the covenant continuity between the old and the new covenants. And he talks about, heaven forbid, for a, 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 a 
room full of Jews. He then tells them about the inclusion of the Gentiles, teaching them about true Israel and the church. And then he leaves them with a warning. He leads them with a warning. He has taken them to the gospel. He has taught them the rich theology of covenant theology. And then he concludes to warning them about the crooked generation in which they live. In other words, when I finish this sermon, you guys are going out into the world. And when you go out into the world, the world seeks to deceive you, to lie to you, to do everything against what I have preached in this sermon. Here's your warning. Let us now pray. Right? I mean, that's the conclusion of his sermon. And so what we see in both the example of Ezra and the example of Peter is that preaching is driven from the Word of God. Preaching uses the Word of God. Preaching is for the people. It's not just simply a a take-in form of entertainment, but it is truly a form of teaching the people what the gospel is, to believe the gospel, but so also to live the gospel, so also what does Scripture teach. I want to conclude on this. Calvin defines preaching as the public exposition of Scripture by the man sent from God in which God Himself is present in judgment and grace. That's a really good definition. Let me read that again. Preaching is the public exposition of Scripture, right? So, so, in, so in other words, it's not private Bible study. It's, it's not personal time in your daily devotion. It's public, and it is expository. It's going to the Word of God, drawing out from the Word of God. If you're not expositing Scripture, Calvin says, that's not preaching. So it's public, it's expository, And it is done by the man sent from God, which goes back to Don's comment earlier about gifting and ordination, in which God Himself is present in judgment and grace. Now, if I might break that down, and I'm not going to do it in the same order uh, that that quote is, but to break it down, what Calvin is saying is, first of all, that preaching is preached by the man ordained by God. It's someone who is specifically set apart, someone who is specifically called by God for that specific purpose. And so in that sense, it is only by that person. Secondly, it is to be done publicly. It's not to be done in hiding. Uh, And again, some of this, our modern era, is somewhat distorts this understanding because we think about all of the myriad of ways that we have recording devices and be able to draw from so many different resources. But in its essence... Preaching is done publicly in person. Thirdly, Calvin says that it expounds on specific passages of Scripture. I had lunch with a fellow pastor uh, this last week, and uh, he is beginning, he's not of, of our denomination, but he's, he's beginning to, uh, to look at preaching through passages of Scripture. And he was telling me how, how rewarding it was to, to preach through a, a couple of chapters of a, of a specific uh, a book. And I, and I said, well, you know, that, that's, that's what I typically do, other than certain 
special times within the, in the year. Typically, I'm preaching through a book. And, um, and he said, well, have you always done that? I said, yeah, I've, I've always done that. And, uh, and then I said, I said, you know, one of the things that I love about it is it forces you to deal with the passages you never want to deal with. And that's one of the beautiful things. And, and that's part of what preaching is. There are tough passages in the Bible. You know this. And when they come upon it, it requires more time and more digging. But nevertheless, we're blessed through it. And then Calvin says that that man speaks on God's behalf as God is present by His Spirit. In other words, what we're saying is, and I think this is what my seminary professor was sort of driving at, is that when the preacher is in the pulpit, he's speaking on behalf of God. He is preaching the Word of God and therefore proclaiming from God. Uh, And then Calvin concludes by saying he preaches judgment and grace. And the two are complementary, aren't they? If all you ever hear is sermons on grace, you never hear judgment. If all you ever hear from is judgment, you stop going to church, right? Uh, so, so there's a balance there between preaching judgment, but so also preaching grace. And I think that's a helpful uh, answer. I mean, a, a definition. All right. So next week. What we're going to look at is we're going to to expand on this. I'm going to use question 158 and 159, uh, which I have included on your handout, on your printout. We're going to include question 158 and 159 as we dig into this topic in in greater depth. Yes, Don? Mm. Yeah. You don't, know. You, you don't know. That's right. Yeah, if you couldn't hear Don, what Don said, so Don is, is a retired uh, pastor, and um, what he's, he said is there are times where you come to a passage in Scripture and you, you preach on it, and you may delve into a specific topic within that passage and perhaps emphasize something. In this case, it was an emphasis on uh, the understanding of suicide. And, and so afterwards, someone came to him and, and said, why would you ever preach on that? And, and you know, that, we don't need to hear about that. That's a gruesome topic, so forth and so on. And as it turns out, uh, I think I understood you correctly, that someone else in the congregation, their friend had just committed suicide. And so, and that's an important thing. There are so many times where, where I will, will preach something and someone comes on their way out the back door and they'll say something like, that's, thank you so much, that's, you know, dealing this, you know, well, thanks for saying thanks, but let's thank the Holy Spirit because I would have no idea what's going on. But there are times where something may be going on and I address it and you go, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not the point of this. You're, you're, you're rebuking me. I don't need to be rebuked. And yet, it's self-centered. 
they don't understand. Well, there may be the person in the pew next to you may need to hear this, and so it's specific to that. So there are your points well taken, Don. There there are times where the, the, the preacher just relies upon the prompting of the Holy Spirit to preach to that local congregation. Yeah. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit uses that sermon to touch that person. Mm. Again, like the suicide like we talked about. Yeah. That's a great point. If you couldn't hear Larry, Larry says one of the benefits of the recorded devices and things, that, the tools that we have today, is we never know how the Lord is going to use that. So there could be somebody that that a year, two years or whatever is dealing with something and they come across one of the sermons from this church or another church and, and the Holy Spirit uses that. And the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the Word of God Period, and uh, and so we're we're thankful that we have all the many things and means that we have today. Any other questions before I close us in prayer? All right, let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are indeed not a silent God, but you have indeed spoken and you have revealed yourself to us. And we thank you that you have raised up men to preach your word. And so we pray for preachers throughout this land. We ask that you would bless them, that you would speak through them, that even preachers in our own city today, as they climb into the pulpit or the lectern, that they would open up and read the Word of God and exposit the Word of God, and your Holy Spirit would move through the preaching of your Word. Oh God, bless the preaching of your Word in your church, and we pray for ourselves as well. Bless this church with faithful preaching of your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.